Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Change Book Radio Show with your host, work-life balance expert, Deb Crow. Join Deb every week as she interviews the co-authors and experts from all over the globe. They'll share their insights into self-empowerment with their personal stories and real-life experiences that will help you on your own personal development and touch every area of your life. Join Deb every Wednesday on Blog Talk Radio at 3 p.m. Eastern. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the show. And here we are at April 11th, 2018. I know spring is working really, really hard to show up in Canada. But as I was mentioning to our guests before we went live, we had a little bit of snow today and a little bit of rain, but I'm hopeful that the sun is going to come out. So, welcome to the show. I want to just start off by thanking our April 2018 sponsor, the Og Mandino Leadership Institute. In the month of April, you can have access to their Habit Finder. It's a profile that goes below the surface of your personality and performance and will scientifically measure your habit of thinking. So if you head over to our episode info, you'll find the link there. It's habitfinder.com forward slash it's with great pleasure that I am interviewing the president of the Og Mandino Leadership Institute today. This is another week where we're showcasing an expert. So before I bring Paul on live, let me tell you a little bit about him. Paul is considered to be a habit dynamics expert. He has spent the last 12 years as a professional speaker, corporate trainer, focused on inspiring and teaching creators, entrepreneurs, and independent thinkers how to increase performance, income, and fulfillment. So without further ado, Paul, welcome to the Change Book Radio Show. Thank you, Deb. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's a real treat for me when I get to have experts on and even more so of a treat that you for this month, so just really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us for the next half an hour. Well, it's a pleasure to be a part of influencers that we we synchronize with and believe in the message and and what you're doing on on a lot of different platforms, and this is a phenomenal one that you're using to make an impact and influence on the world, and, you know, we're, we're, we're honored to be a part of it. Well, I am glad you're here, and I know that one of your is to talk about leadership. So let's dig right into it. I want to really let our listeners have an opportunity to learn the language around leadership. So my first question to you is, I think leadership is one of those words that so large, and I think people have a hard time breaking it down. So what would be your easiest description for the question of how do you really answer Leadership is, I totally agree. It's something that for a lot of people who haven't experienced it in their life can seem just astronomical. It can be, it can seem larger than life. And and in fact, you know, that's primarily because some of the most publicized examples of it 
uh, have a little bit of a of a uh, I wouldn't say an embellishment, but an idea that it has to be earth shattering and life changing. And yet, some of the greatest leaders on the planet don't really provide a whole lot of those bells and whistles. So, in terms of leadership, for me. I, I come to think of some really powerful things that allow it to come more to home, right into the heart of, of someone looking to do that. I think of things like a facilitator, a guide, someone who inspires, and, and, and things like that where uh, there's a favorite TED Talk of mine on this. If, if, if anyone gets an opportunity to see it, just search Lollipop Leadership on TED.com, and there's a beautiful story that just really brings this home where the gentleman there is just talking about just a small act of kindness that he did at a, on a college campus that paid huge dividends over the course of someone's life and who they ended up marrying and the happiness they achieved because he didn't allow leadership to intimidate him. And he made it simple and real and powerful and close to home. And I think that's the most powerful form of leadership we can have. Well, I agree with you. And I, uh, it just, it goes within the grain of person, whether I am doing something on a personal level or a professional level, I have watched that TED Talk. It is very inspiring. It's truly about just serving others and not worrying about being able to execute or show leadership. Basically, show your actions or your words. It doesn't have to be such a framed responsibility, if you will. And when I when I talk to people about creative leadership, I made some notes um, that I wanted to share with our listeners today and, and just kind of get you to chime in on it. When I think of traits of leadership, I think of passion and conflict resolution and adaptability, creativity, negotiation, decision-making, those are all the logistical, if you will, descriptions and duties that people have to have to be a leader. So many leaders struggle in just the few that I mentioned. So one of the challenges is that leadership can be looked at as a role, something that, that has a job description, <laughs> you know, something you're, you're trying to check the boxes on. When, when leadership in its purest form comes from a much deeper place, and there are those that can try and emulate great leaders, but the challenge with that emulation is you're often looking at superficial cues. You're looking at what they're doing rather than who they are and the deep work they've put into getting to the position they're in of influence and humble leadership. Servant leadership is a very common way that it's termed a really powerful philosophy to dig into the way you approach being a leader. But it's really important that if, if you're finding challenges with what you've seemed to have defined as being a great leader is pay attention to the cues you were looking at. Because in my opinion, someone has, has done the deep work for themselves and not just deep reflection. That's, that's a common mistake that premature leaders make is they assume because they've had an opportunity for deep reflection or just because they've accomplished something that immediately qualifies them as a leader. And then we've got the other side of the scale where there are people who don't feel that they're worthy of being the leader, even though they have accomplished great. And when we find ourselves in being able to do that, then we shift into leadership, which is now our opportunity to take the deep work we've done in our own life 
and facilitate and guide others to be able to do that deep work in their own life. And that requires above all else. That requires love. I worked for who I consider the the greatest CEO in in American history, uh, Jack Welch, for several years and and helped him build his legacy in, in an executive MBA program that's now one of the top 25 in the world. And every quarter he would meet with students to talk about leadership. It was the Jack Welch Leadership Institute and uh, or Management Institute talking about leadership and the things that Jack was known for. And people would talk, ask him about strategy, and they'd talk about Six Sigma and, and negotiations. And it would always come back to, yeah, but do you really care about your people? That was at, its, at his core. Do you really care? Do you really love? So if you're struggling with conflicts, if you're struggling with the engagement of your teams, with hitting the bottom line to, to passion and the other more romantic sides of leadership, it, it might be a case of stepping back and finding out, do I really love these people or do I love the idea of these people? And that's sometimes a tough question to consider. Well, it's something that has to be felt and, and emulated. I, I love that point that you made on that. Love for cognition and metacognition, and I could sit and talk all day about that. Metacognition, thinking about the way we think. And I know when I have spoke about gut instinct and the power that our body has to be that communicator and, and to know that instinct is a behavioral tendency. Definition or interpretation when someone says to you, you know, Paul, I just I had that feeling in my gut. How do you explain that to them around a cognitive versus a instinctual response? It's a great question. There's there's a, so many levels and layers to our consciousness, and and I. I hear people talking about a gut instinct and I hear people talking about their intuition all the time. It's really, really important that, I mean, we're, we're, we're the Augmandino Leadership Institute. So of course I'm going to reference uh, one of the greatest experts himself, Augmandino, who talked a lot about this. He talked about our metacognition 50 years ago before neuroscience even, even existed necessarily or even understood these things on this level and said we we want to be really aware of what Og wrote poetically 50 years ago, our other mind that creates our dreams and make us act in ways we do not comprehend. And that last part is really important. It is the other mind that makes us act in ways we do not comprehend, which is why he immediately pivoted from there and said, we're slave to our habits and we want to understand principles. If you don't have a clear definition of the principles of leadership, the principles of your life, the, the principles of being a good person, then it's really hard to gauge the accuracy or even more tricky, the application of your instincts or intuition. Now, I'm not saying that people should heavily second guess their intuition or their instincts, but I can tell you that it is a skill the application of an instinct or an intuition. It is a skill, it is a discipline to learn to listen to the softest influences, to act on them appropriately, 
and to be able to build a track record in your conscious mind of the of the direction and the principles and and the application of those intuitive or instinctive responses and pay close attention to where they worked and where they didn't we're we're not here to 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 bat a thousand to be a hundred percent accurate with our intuition and and our instincts you know i'm working with jack he told me he was right about 50 percent of the time on his instinct for hiring people and at the top of the game it was about 70 percent so even one of the greatest to ever do it wasn't planning on having his instincts be 100%. But if you can be sensitive to the principles that guide success, the principles that guide leadership, and don't second-guess but check in with them, you can start to more substantially develop this skill, develop this discipline that intuition and instinct itself is not the skill it is the deciphering, it is the definition, and it is the implementation of that instinct or that intuition that is where you develop the skill set to allow it to serve you and all those around you. I love that, and I I think people don't give enough thought organization that, you know, like you said, neuroscience wasn't around 50 years ago, but there is that physical connection that frontal cortex is so responsible for logic and critical thinking and just everything to do with language. So even though, you know, like you said, it's all about emulating and really thinking, no one ever hits the mark at 100% all the time. So I just, I find it so fascinating. But it is fine with the behavioral tendency of a gut instinct and, and listen to it. So, I'm going to have some fun with you right now. And I'm the leader okay. of the company. And, and here's, here's my struggle. I consider myself to be a good leader for the company that I'm running. I'm completely I, I want to ask a really good question that I know a lot of leaders probably wouldn't want to ask you. And it's part of having a really authentic and transparent interview. How do you balance getting out of your emotional mind and stay in your logic mind, even though sometimes the decisions that leaders make are difficult and it may not be what their team or their management below them is wanting? Making those tough decisions, you know, even though there's an, an emotional element that you're feeling, how do you shift that into logic mind so you can still really execute effective leadership? question. I, I deal with leaders uh, on a daily basis who are struggling to balance the emotional and the logical. And to borrow from a dear friend of mine, Dr. Kelly Reif, a human scientist, said it, it's really important to live life emologically, as she puts it, um, where, where you are making sure that they are in concert with each other. Because what we want to be careful of, and it's, it's very common, probably about 96% of the time, 94% of the time or so, that most leaders that we work with at the Augmentino Institute have very active minds, constantly, obsessively thinking about new and better ways to do things, very analytical, great at problem solving, great at being able to look at a project and see where the pitfalls or the glue buckets might be, and, and a, a mind that never shuts up, essentially. The challenge is that this mind is charged by a systemic function, and systemic function in mathematics by definition means it can only be one thing or another. It's a singular concept. It's all or nothing, right or wrong, black or white, 
And what the challenge is, is we start to apply it to the question you just asked, is it wants to decipher, okay, do I need to be logical right now or do I need to be emotional right now? Um, which is also a false dichotomy because most of life doesn't occur on a systemic dimension. In fact, none of life actually occurs in a systemic dimension. We manage it, we assess it, and we can reference it on a systemic dimension, but you don't live on a systemic dimension. So the, the mindset right from the get-go of trying to figure out whether this is a logical situation or, or an emotional situation immediately puts you on, on the, behind the eight ball because, as, as, uh, as Dr. Rice said, it, it's always going to be emological. You're going to want to be able to step back and observe the appropriate amount of influence emotionally where it's going to drive a, a deeper passion and concern for the human beings that you're leading, not just the people in your tribe or the employees that work for you or whatever the case is, and allow that to guide the logical side and then trust the combination of both. There will be times where emotions are running high, and that's the time you're going to want to really allow logic to guide that. There are going to be times where logic is overpowering and emotion doesn't seem to get an invitation to the party, where you're going to want to allow emotion to guide it. And so really finding the concert between the two is important because I don't believe there's any situation or any decision that can be made as effectively as possible independent of each other. But being aware, as you were saying, you can tell when you're emotionally charged and you can tell when you're emotionally checked out and very logical. Those are the times the flag should go up. Okay, we need to call in a council with emotions because right now we're a little checked out and logic might end up burning some bridges with the people we care about most. Or run the flag up, okay, we're, we're being really, really emotional right now and logic is not going to have an opportunity to get heard. And using that, what you mentioned before, that metacognition to step back and observe the way they're playing off of each other, and then you choose to step into your power and be the composer to bring them together and, and to play using the analogy in harmony, that's where the strongest decisions are made. When we spend, and uh, quite honestly, waste time trying to figure out which one should be which rather than learning to partner them together and play off of each other, we're going to have an opportunity to, to reach a deeper level of leadership that we, we may have missed before trying to serve two masters. I, I'm happy that we're talking about this because leaders like to show up and always be perfect and polished, and it's not realistic. It's not transparent. And I think there's more bang for your buck, if you will, if you're able to show some of your weaknesses. And I think as a manager, I think you gain greater respect that your team doesn't see you as someone in a, in a perfection bubble, but that sometimes there are those struggles it's all in the way that it's approached and processed and how you land up executing that. I think that's a good leader. Now I want to talk about millennials. I know that through different generations, whether it be, baby boomers or Gen X or moving into millennials, they have a different motivation. I know that they like to communicate differently, and I also know that they make decisions very differently. How do you measure, or what do you think is a good measurement, Paul, of a return on investment? Because I have a lot of HR friends who are consultants and coaches, and they're all 
looking at leadership development. How do you measure a return of, on investment for some soft skill development? Because I know conversation I've had with several businesses where I've done some consulting and you can't really put a price development, but what do you think is a good approach to, to measure it? Great. Fantastic question. Um, want to touch on something really quick that you mentioned earlier in terms of not trying to be perfect and vulnerability because it, it exposes Honestly, Deb, the number one challenge we run into with leaders, whether we're working with global 100 companies or small uh, small businesses or whatever the case is, the number one challenge in leadership when you're in a leadership role because of your title or your position is uh, that you are more than likely working with compliance rather than commitment. And the more perfect you try to come across, the more compliance you're going to receive with a nice mask or facade of commitment. But what you're really dealing with are nodding heads and smiling faces and no connection to what's really going on under the surface, which brings us into an interesting transition of, of millennials because there is some major disconnects out there and some really poor assumptions about this generation. And soft skills are something that is our expertise, except that we've had an opportunity to turn soft skills into hard facts. The, the way that you measure an ROI with soft skills is not that complicated. And one is make sure that you're not isolating the, the focus. Very similar to wanting, not wanting to isolate whether it's emotional or whether it's logical because that's a false dichotomy. You don't want to isolate, okay, this is the soft skills part of our business, this is the hard skills part of our business. If you've got someone that is really an expert in soft skills, they're going to be able to come in and attach those to hard skills. They're going to be able to attach those to performance, to expertise, to engagement, and everything else. Because otherwise, you run into the challenge that, that people have seen over and over again, and you had someone who came in to motivate your team, to stimulate the team with optimism or, or this, this totally mysterious word out there called mindset. Um, and yet uh, they, they start to separate, okay, we're in soft skill mode now, and they detach themselves from the bottom line functions of the business. Right now we're just worried about feeling good about ourselves and, and inspiring people without really understanding what that means. Well, that, that's, that's where you lost the battle right from the get-go is you're going to want to learn soft skills in a hard fact environment of how they attach to the performance, to the mission, to what you're doing. Uh, for example, I have every leader that I work with ask everyone that works for them that, that, that they're trying to lead four questions, four questions that gets them an opportunity to connect soft skills to hard skills. They're questions that have been shaped for, for over 50 years to be able to step into someone else's world that you're trying to lead, that you're in a position to influence, that are in your stewardship, and it's the marrying of uh, the soft skills with what really matters in terms of implementation. So the, the, the short summary of, of the answer to, to your question is similar to the emotional and logical. And that's stop believing they're two separate things. Because soft skills 
uh, oftentimes are a natural manifestation of an intrinsic connection to the hard skills required of them in that job, the, the dedication, the showing up, the, the concentration of focus that's required. And, uh, and if you're going to go in and, and try and just uh, approach the symptoms without connecting it to the root causes, then you're simply going to continue to prolong the issue. You're, you're, you're going to create distractions and band-aids, as we would call it. I call that in-sync thinking. I like that. I like the way that you frame that. And you just, you've led beautifully into my next question. We've become such a fast-paced society with technology, and I see amongst younger professionals just that lack of face-to-face interaction, quality, stimulating, intellectual conversation. being the norm for us nowadays, that there is less opportunity to interact and build trust and rapport. So adding on to what you were just talking about, I see this a lot in LinkedIn where someone will request to connect or join the network, then there's no follow-up dialogue. And I wanted to use that because I wanted to give something relatable to our listeners. To me, someone, you have that ability to add a note on LinkedIn to use it as an example. But how do people build rapport or trust when they're just clicking a button and there's no intent to initiate the relationship? Can you talk a little bit about that building trust piece with all the technology that we have in our face every day? So first of all, Stop fighting it, <laughs> okay? Um, that would be my first advice. There are so many people out there with so many opinions about social media and technology, and it's created such a disconnected world. Well, if we stop spending so much time fighting it and resisting it and learned how to use it, learned how to utilize it, learned how to, oh, my gosh, these millennials, they don't even speak proper English. Have you seen the way they text? Yeah, it's a new language, and it's happened many times. You can go back generation over generation over generation, and if you go down a singular linear line of English teachers, every single one of them has always been critical of the language that gets adopted by a new generation. So that first and foremost, let's stop trying to fight in, in a futile battle. Technology is here. Social media is here. LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is, let's, let's hold our personal opinions and pour that energy into figuring out how to use it to create connection. Because otherwise, we're just going to surrender and say, I guess this is the only way I can connect. And we're going to half-heartedly, you know, friend request or request to connect on LinkedIn or whatever the case is. And I was meeting with a social media, a, a renowned consultant in social media who's doing amazing things right now. And he said something to me. It was probably the simplest thing he said in our conversation that just rocked my world. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. And he said, the problem with social media uh, the reason people, he said the reason they suck at it, the reason they aren't good at it is because they're not social. It has nothing to do with the technology and everything to do with the basic principles of connection, the basic principles of opening your eyes to notice things you weren't noticing before because we are very naturally as human beings very self-centric. We're either thinking about ourselves or we're thinking about what other people think about ourselves a lot of energy and we can see the thought processes and what they 
commonly sound like because of the habit finder and that amazing technology there. So even if you aren't consciously choosing to have this dialogue, it doesn't mean that it's not there. And so a commitment to connect on social media, on LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever the case is, it, it's about bringing and learning social skills. It's about learning to connect with people, notice them, step into the world, create a safe place. When that starts coming from a genuine place, you can transcend technology. In fact, for a long time, if I could get ultra personal for a second, my wife grew up on a farm in South Dakota in a, in a family that wasn't really like, let's talk about our emotions. And I grew up in almost the opposite. And at first, whenever we'd have conflicts in our relationship, she would want to address, the only way I could engage her was via text message, even if we were in the same room. And that used to drive me nuts because I wanted to sit back and I wanted to connect. I wanted to talk with her. And so I resented the technology. I, I didn't like the technology because I assumed she's hiding behind the technology. When I finally let go of that and I stepped back and saw that it was a safe place for her to even scratch the surface of where our conflicts were, and I embraced that, and I started applying the same principles I would have applied face-to-face -face in an in-depth conversation with her to a text message, giving the same care and thought and, and respect and regard in that technology, then suddenly she started to come more alive and, and fast forward several years and now, although if there might be kind of a, you know, an explosion between the two of us, if you will, text message might be a safe place to just point it out. Now we can connect face to face because I stopped fighting the technology and I met her where she was most comfortable and we we're able to develop further than that. So, so if, if you're out there just connecting for the sake of connecting on LinkedIn, stop for a second and just pause. And, and here's one of the best things you could do. If there's someone you want to connect with on LinkedIn, click on their profile and look at their picture. And just ask yourself, who is this person? What, what does it look like they represent? Why would I be able to add value to their life? Why, what value could they add to my life? And make them real. That's one of the reasons why technology is so easy to lose connection because we're interfacing with the technology without making the intrinsic connection that we're actually connecting with a human being and coming full circle. If we could just let go of the energy of fighting this because it's here and it's not going anywhere. It may not be called LinkedIn five years from now or Facebook 10 years from now, but it's not going anywhere. You know, the, the, the phone in your hand, the computer, the laptop, the, the iPad and everything. I mean, the fundamentals of those devices, although they may change, it may be like a, a chip in your ear in, in a few years, who knows, but the concept isn't changing. So let's embrace technology and let's inject the intrinsic connection of humanity into that rather than fight it for the sake of humanity because I personally believe that's a futile battle because this is where the masses are headed. So let's let's make it where we can connect. Let's turn it back into a human connection with the convenience of technology rather than a resistance to technology because it distracts from a real connection. Well, I couldn't even answer that any better. And let's, let's get people behind and cell phones and nothing will ever replace a face-to-face -face conversation for me. And it's something Paul, I pride myself on that I do every day and it's in my my to-do list if you will it's to reach out to someone on a personal level and have a conversation 
professionally because I just, I find email so, it's so interpersonal and it can be so misconstrued. So I really love the way you frame that. So I thought we'd have some fun with you. Instead of being metacognitive, I'm not going to let you think about what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you some fun questions and you have to share with us just what, what's sitting in your mind and just, That could be dangerous, but I'll do my best. Okay, no thinking. That's the key. What do you <laughs> want your legacy? What do you want your legacy to be called? I know weather's not cooperating with us, but did you ask what do I want my legacy to be? Correct. Okay, I want I want my legacy to be um, that that I knew I was enough. So I was able to pour all of my energy and my attention into inspiring others to realize the same. Oh, I like that. What character trait do you learn from your mom? What character traits do I what? Did you learn from your mom? Mm. Wow. You're going to get me emotional even without thinking. Um, I learned kindness and not abiding kindness, not putting up with people kindness, a a pure, totally accurate perspective of the beauty of every human being on this planet. My mom raised seven kids, and, and I can't remember a single moment she ever raised her voice. Uh, her discipline was kindness. Her discipline was that you would never want to do anything that would disappoint this angelic human being. And it taught me so much about how much we have to offer others by just being a good person. Oh, that's lovely. That's what moms do. But not yelling with seven kids, that's, that's uh, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Five different words, and I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Okay. What makes, what makes you successful? What makes me successful? Yes. Passion. A willingness to suffer for things that I love. I like that. What makes you fearful? Inadequacy. Uh, makes getting you concerned about... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say getting concerned that I'll get too caught up with my own self-sabotaging dialogue to miss someone's life I could have made better. Oh, I like that. What makes you motivated? Influence. What makes you surprised? What makes me survive or surprised? Surprised. Surprised? Oh, um, I don't know. Humor just popped into my mind. I don't know. <laughs> I, I love, I love, I love when 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 really powerful people can can use humor appropriately, and it always surprises me from from some people that can do that really well. I I like that. That's a good answer. And what makes you happy? My girls. What is your favorite 
go-to self-care activity? You know I have to have a work-life balance question on this interview. What is your go-to self-care for Paul? Uh, the hot tub after my workouts every morning at 4.30 in the morning. Oh, I like that. If I asked your girls to describe you in one word, what would they tell me? <laughs> Goofy. Or loud. <laughs> <laughs> and through your eyes, who is an icon and why? What was the first part? Through your eyes, who is your icon and why? See, that's tough to just pick one. Um, but I'd have to say uh, lately in my life, my, my icon has become my father, who is my business partner. Um, I there are some nightmare hellish elements to working with family and we have not been immune to those, but similar to a marriage and you go through some really tough, rocky spots because you're trying so hard to grow together that what comes out on the other end is just beautiful. My father and I have gone through some rough, rocky, difficult circumstances and coming out on the other side, he is, he's one of my best friends I've learned more about him as a man and a human being that I could have ever seen otherwise as, as just uh, not just, but seeing him as, as my father. So, but to see a man who has been as selfless as him in real life and have a front row seat to it, he's, he's definitely going to be top of the list for, for icons for me. agree on that answer and it leads nicely into my last question for you. What is your favorite family tradition that you have kept and introduced to your family? Uh, a visit to a beach house on Mission Beach in San Diego in the summertime. Um, it's more, it's my favorite place on the planet. I've, I've lived in the Caribbean. Um, I've been international. I've, I've been to some of the most amazing places on this, on, in this country and, um, mission beach, San Diego, a beach house, waking up to the sunrise and, and, and smelling the ocean breeze and everything. It's just, there is a, a Zen and a connectiveness to the, to the, to the earth and to the way things move and ebb and flow with the waves. I mean, I just, I could, I could talk about it all day, but that's, that's easily my favorite tradition is making sure that me and my girls and my wife get out to, to San Diego every summer. Well, I would definitely agree. And, and what a special memory that you've carried on for your own family. So I'm going to ask you one more question. Got a couple minutes left. What advice, can you give to our listeners that are listening that may have that great idea or that vivid vision of a goal that they can just see and smell and taste and they're just so fearful to run forward and just go for it? What advice would you give to them? Well, you said, you said a really interesting term, and I listen for it really acutely these days. 
and that's the word just. I just need to go for it. I just my advice to your listeners would be listen to when this dialogue shows up. I just need to implement the system. I just need to sit down and write that. I just need to, and, and we start getting into this just need to life. And and what my counsel is, that's a powerful command. But when you say just need to, you are implying to your conscious and unconscious mind that you need to focus on something singular. And so you're going to want to be really sensitive about giving it something tangible, simple, and singular to allow you to take I just need to and do the just need to. And it needs to be as simple as um, I just need to jump in the pool. You don't really need to think a lot about that. You don't need to think about your landing because you're jumping into a pool. You, you don't need to think about the swimming because that's another process that comes after. It's, it's merely gathering your nerve and jumping. And, and if you feel yourself on the edge of greatness, you feel yourself on the edge of potential, it's likely because you've inserted a process or a complex step into that just need to command that you're giving. Okay, brain, I just need to write that paper. Well, that's a process. So it's going to freak out and sabotage. Or I just need to create that presentation. Or I just need to make these phone calls. And anytime you're adding steps, plural, or a process to that command, then your brain is going to freak out a little bit because it was planning on something really simple, like I just need to jump. And that's oftentimes what it feels like when we're right there, is in our mind, as vivid visualizers, as you pointed out, we can see the gap being narrowed and even connected of where we are and where we want to be, and yet in our reality it never comes together. It's always going to require a jump. So when you... Uh, for the rest of today or tomorrow, if you find yourself going, well, I just need to break it down to the ridiculous. Write down what you are thinking. I just need to do this. And then make it simpler. And then make it simpler. And then one more time, make it that much more simple. And then see if you can say, I just need to that. And then gather your nerve and do it. And then allow the accomplishment of that doing to press you into the next step and make sure the next one's just as simple. And the next one, Ogmandino said one step at a time is not too hard. And as we do this, then these things become a pleasure to perform. And as Og went on to say, when it's a pleasure to perform, it's our tendency to perform it often. That's where consistency is found. That's where greatness is created. So if you're, if you're a, a visualizer, you see big things and, and you're getting down to that edge of, I just need to simpler. As Og put at the beginning of The Greatest Secret, remember KISS. Keep it simple, stupid, okay? And, and, and get ready to gather your nerve and jump. And you might have a little bit of that <clears throat> feeling, like if you've ever looked off of a tall place or jumped off of a tall place, that's going to be your threshold of the next level of your growth. Embrace it. Love it. And keep that jump simple. Otherwise, you're risking injury and complexities that are going to hold you back. Exactly. Well, we've got about a minute left, Paul. Wanted to share and, and dedicate to you and thank you for your time today and it's by Mother Teresa I alone cannot change the world but I can cast across the water to create many ripples so thanks so much for spending time with us today Paul and we appreciate for the show for the month and I hope everyone takes away 
a few nuggets and to put into their toolkit. And Paul, thanks so much for your, your expertise and spending time with me this afternoon. Thank you, Deb. It was, it was such a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks. Take care. So thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I'll be back here next week with one of the co-authors from the Change Book series. Just really think of all of the leadership nuggets that Paul shared with us. And tune in tomorrow to their webinar. There's two different times and two different links on our episode info. And thanks again for spending your Wednesday afternoon with me. This is Deb Crow, Change Book Radio Show.